we're going to have a scripture reading, and my friend Heather is going to come and do that. Good morning. This is God's word from Daniel chapter 11. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Amen. Thank you, Heather. Good morning, church family. How's everybody doing? You guys good? Uh, My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new, welcome. Glad to have you. We are in week 13 of 14 of our Uh, study of the book of Daniel. One of the things we like to do as a church family is to take a book of the Bible and just go right through the book of the Bible, even when that puts us into choppy waters (laughs) like today. But real quickly, since we're wrapping up Daniel next week, uh, and the season of Advent is upon us, the season of expectation of the coming of the birth of Jesus that will be celebrated throughout December, I wanted to give you an update on what our sermon series for Advent is going to be. This year, we're going to focus on the theme of the women of the Advent. And this comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. If you're familiar with Matthew, chapter 1, you know that it's everybody's favorite type of Bible verses, genealogies. And yeah, I mean, just don't threaten me with a good time. And genealogies sometimes are those passages that we skip over, but in Matthew chapter 1, it's this long list of all of the ancestors of Jesus the King, Jesus the Messiah, which that shouldn't surprise us. In a, in a royal sort of document declaring that Jesus is King, it should not surprise us that there's a list of names. What's really surprising is that there are four women mentioned in the list of the ancestors of Jesus the King. And that is particularly uncommon for this time in human history. And so we're going to take our four Sundays and we're going to look at these four amazing women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And I'll just, I'll just say it this way. Everywhere, uh, all over the world right now, a lot of conversations about women, their place in the world, their place in society. Uh, I'll just say this. Everywhere that the gospel of Jesus Christ is truly proclaimed, women flourish. And so I want to have an opportunity to focus in on not just the theme of, of women, but the theme of these women have some, uh, some difficult and, and painful stories. So it's pretty remarkable stuff that we're going to get to focus in on. These women are amazing, and as part of their testimony, they're in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. So I'm excited to focus in on that in December. But for today... Antichrist. So, uh, goodness, I'll tell you what, like, I have been working on this sermon a little bit throughout all of the whole Daniel series. And by working on it, I mean stressing about it. And, like, I have listened to the new Kanye record so many times, I still can't figure out who the Antichrist is, okay? Uh, I do have some things to say, uh, hopefully from the text and from the Word of God. And so I wonder if you'd join with me in prayer as we tackle a 
challenging, but I think helpful topic today. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your word, and God, thank you that your word does challenge us to grow, to repent, to see you more clearly, and to follow you with more devotion. God, I ask and I pray in these next few minutes that you would help me to teach with clarity, with, with truthfulness, in a way that exalts Jesus, our Savior. God, for all of us, I pray you would give us soft hearts, teachable hearts, that we might uh, come to know Jesus better. And even today, as this theme of Antichrist is, is kind of our starting point, Jesus, we want to see our Christ. We want to see the goodness of our Savior, even in the midst of looking at evil and, and the way that it acts in the world. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' good name, everyone said, amen. And every good story has an antagonist. And as we've read through the book of Daniel, we've seen lots of antagonists, have we not? We've seen antagonists like Nebuchadnezzar, and we've seen antagonists like lions, and we've seen antagonists like uh, these beasts that come, and the talking horn, and we've had lots of different antagonists. And, and if you study storytelling, I'm not an expert by any means, but I, I do enjoy the art of storytelling, different books that I've read over even just uh, one this last year, two this last year, I should say. You find out that there's really kind of four basic types of antagonists, okay? The first type of antagonist in any story is the internal antagonist, the battle within, right? Luke Skywalker, I want to be a Jedi Knight like my father, but I don't know how, and do I have what it takes? It's the internal battle, Right? Then there's the more obvious enemy. This is someone who you can just clearly see. They show up. They're there. They're a bad guy. Darth Vader. You know? Draco Malfoy. Uh, I'm just trying to be inclusive here, right? Like, this is an obvious, an obvious enemy. But if you continue down the progression, there oftentimes is an evil villain behind the scenes. Someone who's more, you know, pulling the strings. They're maybe not quite as obvious of a villain. They're more, again, like I said, behind the scenes or, or larger than life. This is Emperor Palpatine or he who shall not be named. Or, uh, you know, you think about different stories. Maybe it's, maybe it's uh, you know, there, there's a, uh, I, I've been watching, uh, what's the Jack Ryan series? You know, there's like the obvious villain who's, you know, the sniper guy, but then there's the behind the scenes, the government leaders who are pulling the strings, right? And then the fourth type of antagonist is just all the way zoomed out to like an entity or a force, right? Like the force, like the dark side of the force or, uh, you know, just a, a shadow government or, or sometimes this is where like nature comes into play, you know, movies where it's like the bad guy is a hurricane or a sharknado or something like that, right? Just different types of, of less personal antagonists, but you have all of these sorts of things happening. Now, the Bible actually speaks in, in, in all these terms, right? We know that part of the struggle we have as individuals is we have sin within us and we have evil desires or we have fears or uh, worries or, or those sorts of things internally, and then sometimes there's obvious enemies. There's a, there's a person, a king, a ruler. It's, it's Nebuchadnezzar. It's Herod in the New Testament. It's a persecutor of the Christian church. And then you zoom out and there's kind of behind the scenes the evil villain, you know, the devil or the beasts from the sea or the dragon or the serpent or these different language it's used. Then you zoom all the way out, the, the, the biggest enemy of all, sin and death. And the apostle Paul says that the last enemy to be defeated is death. Now, Daniel 11 is going to kind of take us 
through this telescoping view of antagonists. In Daniel 11, we are introduced, not by name, but it might as well be, to yet another, to another villain, actually a villain that we maybe have seen before. A villain named Antiochus Epiphanes. He's a real historical figure. He was a king uh, down the line after Alexander the Great died and Greece was split into four. I'll get more into that in a little bit here. We're going to see this specific villain. He's not mentioned by name, but the context makes it crystal clear. But there's a problem when you start to look at Daniel chapter 11 being just about this one specific guy, Antiochus. There's some language in Daniel 11 and Daniel 12, which are all kind of one unit of literature, that starts to push us beyond just a mere king. You guys remember last week, for those of you who are here, we looked at the Prince of Tyre. And then all of a sudden, the language, it starts to just get bigger and bigger. And like, I don't think we're talking about just the Prince of Tyre anymore. The same thing is going to happen in Daniel 10, 11, and 12. We're talking about this guy, Antiochus, and I'll show you in a minute. The language starts to turn. You're like, I don't know that we're talking just about Antiochus anymore. And in fact, I'm just going to jump ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll t- spend more time on this next week as we close out the series. But Daniel 12 takes us all the way to what looks like the end of the age and the resurrection of the dead. It talks about, you know, at that time, the people will be delivered. Everyone whose name is found written in the book, those, the, the many of those, or, or some translations, multitudes that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and everlasting contempt. And, and, and I'll walk you through more of this, but I just want you to see there's this idea of this trajectory that we're on. It's like we're talking about Antiochus, but we're talking about something more. We're talking about a particular villain, but then we're also talking about a greater, deeper, darker, mysterious villain that we haven't yet fully identified. And I want to give you an interpretive tool that will help you not only understand what I'm going to teach today, but will help you as you read biblical prophecy, because this idea of like zooming in and out or looking uh, through a a, telescopic lens is going to be really helpful. So let me share with you a couple of ideas about how to read biblical prophecy. Number one, we are told that when the Old Testament prophets were speaking, they didn't fully understand even that which they were saying. In 1 Peter, it talks about they're searching and they're inquiring and they're, they're asking about it. And they recognize that they weren't just serving themselves. Peter says they were actually serving us. We're fortunate. We're privileged. We're blessed because now we can look back on those prophecies and we can see, oh, it makes a lot more sense now. But at the time, the prophets didn't fully understand. I think they understood enough. But there are implications of what they say that they just didn't really understand. Another idea here is that prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, often sets a trajectory. The book of Hebrews tells us that these prophets greeted these promises from afar. It's like they're here and they're looking at something, but then there's something beyond that's kind of from afar. And number three, there are often near and far fulfillments of biblical prophecy. There are oftentimes a prophecy will happen and there's more than one way to understand it. Let me give you an example. Isaiah chapter 7, the great prophet, and this great passage that you're going to see on a lot of Christmas cards in upcoming weeks, okay? Isaiah chapter 7, the context is there's a king of Judah, 
and he's being attacked by the king of Israel and the king of Syria has joined in. The prophet Isaiah shows up and says, hey, Ahaz, king of Judah, don't freak out. It's all going to be okay. Israel and Syria, they're not going to stand. Judah's going to be okay. And Isaiah goes, and actually Isaiah offers, he goes, hey, do you want a sign? Would you, would you like a sign to prove that I'm telling you is true? And Ahaz goes, no, 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 I don't, I don't need a sign. I trust you. I trust you're a prophet of God. And Isaiah goes, nah, you're going to get a sign anyway. And the sign that he gives says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Anybody seen that on a Christmas card? Now, the New Testament writers come along later, like 700, almost 800 years later, and they come along and they say, that was about Jesus. But read Isaiah 7. It, it's going to happen then. And commentary, commentaries and scholars, they argue about it. Well, is it about right then and there for King Ahaz? Or, and obviously the New Testament refers to Jesus. Like, well, is it, is it near or is it far? Is it going to happen soon or is it going to happen later? In Sound City, we know the answer. Yes, thank you. It's a bad analogy, maybe, but it's, it's almost like, okay, Aaron, can I borrow you? Can you come over here? Okay. Can you guys give it up for Aaron? We love Aaron. And you just happen to be sitting in the front row, and it's really convenient that he has the same name as me, so don't forget it. Okay, so Aaron, I need you to stand, like, right here, okay? And then I want you to face me, okay? Now, I can't see the people in the back row. You guys are conveniently in the blinding light, Okay? So if Aaron's standing right here, I'm looking at Aaron. I'm like trying to describe. I'm like, I see there's a guy. He's got glasses. He's gorgeous. I mean, just an absolutely gorgeous human being. But also it looks like he's wearing a bright yellow beanie. And maybe a track jacket of some sort. And also has long blonde hair and looks like a teenage girl. And you all are like, you sound like a lunatic, Aaron. Not this Aaron, this Aaron. And it's because I'm looking at, is that, who is that up there? Oh, I know. Yeah, it's your kids. All right. Why are your kids up there and you're down here? What's going on? I know, mine are all scattered around too. Okay, let's give it up for Aaron, all right? Thank you. It's a weird analogy that I didn't really practice before this service, but the idea is I'm looking at something here close and I can see Aaron more clearly, but off in the distance, there's something else kind of in the background and beyond. That's a lot what biblical prophecy works like. And I think that as Daniel is looking at this picture of Antiochus Epiphanes, he's seeing something further and beyond, and so we need to dig in and investigate that, okay? So let's start with some more close-up villains that we can see. Verse 1, As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece— But then a mighty king, some might even say a great king from Greece, will arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And the next 20 verses read like a history documentary. It talks about how Persia, Daniel's writing during the time of the Persian reign, but Persia is going to be conquered by Greece, by this great and mighty king. And then in verse 4, it tells us that after this king dies, the empire is going to be blown up into four, north, south, east, and west. And after that, the north and the south kingdom, what we would call today Syria and Egypt, start battling with each other, and they're just battling and battling, and the king from the north wants to conquer the king from the south. And over the centuries, there's just a lot of bad guys. 
and there's treaties and there's marriages to try to, you know, bring it together. And then those marriages don't work. And then there's more battling and more fighting. And, you know, stop me if you've heard this one. Does that sound like human history to anybody else? Just fighting and wars and battling and treachery and failed alliances. And all of this reads really, really accurately. It reads so accurately that sometimes skeptical scholars will come along and say there's no way that it could have been written ahead of time. It had to have been written after the fact. It's just too accurate. But friends, if we believe in a God who knows the ends from the beginning, who, who speaks divine revelation, we have nothing to fear from the idea of predictive prophecy, even if this predictive prophecy is really, really accurate. Now, I will say there are some good Uh, respectable, responsible Bible teachers who have some good textual reasons for why maybe it was written later and added into the canon. I have some questions and some doubts about that. That's not a litmus test for biblical faithfulness, but I just want to at least say we shouldn't balk at the idea that God could speak accurately about the things that are to happen in the future. Amen? Now, there's there's some things in here, though, that we can see, like, really, really clearly. By the way, if you want this whole section here, um, a, 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 how would I put it, like an annotated history. I copied an article by uh, one of the scholars we've been referencing, Chun Long Sao, and I posted it up on the website. I think it's like 35 pages long, where they go through this whole section of the Bible and they interject all of the names and the events that actually took place in history. And you can see just how unbelievably accurate it really is. It's pretty fascinating. If you like, you know, Seleucid versus Ptolemaic dynasty history, if that's your jam, knock yourself out. Verse 21 is where things start to really come into focus. In his place... This is like way down the line of kings. Now here comes another one. A contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. Verse 25. He shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south, Egypt, with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he won't stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Verse 29. At the time appointed, he, this king from the north, shall return and go back into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. It's not going to go so well for him this time. Why? Well, ships from Katim will come against him and he'll be afraid and withdraw and he'll turn back. And as he's turning back and heading back up north, he's just going to be enraged and take some action against the Holy Covenant. He's going to stop through Jerusalem on his way back up north from south in Egypt and be just in anger, do some horrific things against the people of the covenant of God. He'll turn back He'll pay attention to those who forsake the covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they'll set up in its place the abomination that makes desolate. Some of your translations might say the abomination of desolation. And he shall seduce with flattery those 
who violate the covenant. Got a very specific bad guy in frame here. And history tells us that his name is Antiochus IV. He's also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. That's a a surname that he gave to himself, which means the appearance of God. Humble dude. He was a Seleucid king. That's the dynasty that he comes from. He ruled over the northern kingdom of Greece. Greece broke into four, north, south, east, west, and he is the ruler. I mean, this is centuries down the line. This is in the, you know, the, the 100s BC. He's the king that rules over Syria. And he was particularly keen to enforce Hellenism. He wanted everyone everywhere to act more Greek. Dress Greek, speak Greek, worship the Greek gods. Do not worship the gods of your own lands. You gotta, you gotta be like us. And he was particularly uh, wicked in his enforcement of this in the area of land that he had control over. He had a particular obsession with Egypt. He regularly fought against Egypt. And you can, you can read about all this in history. There were multiple battles where he would go from the north in Syria, down south to Egypt, and back and forth, and back and forth. And do you guys know what's kind of like directly smack dab in between Syria and Egypt? Israel. And in 168 BC, it's actually in December, all this stuff goes down. There's a particular moment when he had lost a battle, a particularly humiliating loss, to Egypt. And on his way back up north to Syria, he attacked the temple in Jerusalem. And it stands as one of the most horrific moments in the history of the people of Israel. By the way, this is where we get the the winter celebration of Hanukkah from. Because it's this moment that I'm about to read to you where a guy named Judah Maccabees rose up and there's battles and they rededicate the temple and they light the candles, the menorah. That's where this all comes from, is this history in between what we call the Old and the New Testament. Here's, here's what one of those books, this is from the book of First Maccabees. This is not scripture. It is written uh, kind of in between the Old and New Testaments, but it's really interesting history. This is what they say. On the 15th day of Chislev, in the 145th year, they, these people of Antiochus, they erected, there it is, an abomination of desolation on the altar of burnt offering. Other sources tell us that unclean animals like pigs were sacrificed in the temple of God. A statue of Zeus was erected. I mean, this is horrific The people of Israel had been in exile. They got to go back home. They got to rebuild the temple. They got to restart temple worship. And this guy, Antiochus, shows up and builds altars in the surrounding towns of Judah, offering incense at the doors of the houses and the streets. The books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and they burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant, the the law of Moses, or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by the decree of the king. I mean, you can keep reading this on your own. I warn you, the language is not for the faint of heart. There are some horrors that are described later in the book of Maccabees. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in the towns. And on the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of the burnt offering. It happened. Daniel prophesied about it. 
This king will come. There will be an abomination that causes desolation. It will be just a horrific thing that just ruins everything. The book of Maccabees comes along and said, it happened, it happened. You see this? This is what happened. The abomination took place. There's only one little issue. It's the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, which is yet another 160, 170, well, I guess closer to 200 years later. Do you remember Jesus said in Matthew 24? He's telling his disciples, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Daniel prophesied it. It happened during the time of the Maccabees. Jesus said it's still to happen. You guys see this idea of trajectory of biblical prophecy? What happened in AD 70, roughly 40 years after the earthly life and, and, and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus? What happened in, in the year 70? Anybody know? temple was destroyed. The Romans showed up in force and obliterated the temple. And if you travel to Jerusalem to this day, there are but a few remaining walls and pieces of the temple that once stood as one of the wonders of the ancient world. It's like the abomination of Antiochus Epiphanes was yet just a preview of the fuller destruction that was to come after the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm sharing this with you because sometimes when you're reading biblical prophecy, you might think, well, wait a minute, how does this connect to this, connect to this? And the idea is, yeah, it's, there's a trajectory. There's a continuum. But let's keep reading because now we're really going to zoom out big. The language shifts and almost every scholar and every commentator says, yeah, this doesn't seem to apply to Antiochus anymore. I'll show you what I mean. The the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. Verse 37, he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. That phrase, beloved by women, could also be translated, he'll pay no attention to the love of women. And this is where it's like, well, Antiochus did enjoy the love of women. Just leave it at that. But the first part of that verse says he'll pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, which actually is not really true about Antiochus. He, Antiochus really loved the gods of his fathers, the Greek pantheon. He wanted everybody to worship Zeus and, and Hermes and all of, all of the Greek gods that you know about. That's who he wanted them to worship. So what was so accurate now all of a sudden looks bigger, looks different. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest forces with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Again, some of the stuff just does not apply to Antiochus anymore. I think that Daniel, as God is speaking to him, is gazing off into the distance and he can see some things up close pretty clearly, but there's something bigger and worse beyond. And this is why Virtually every discussion of the subject of the Antichrist includes Daniel chapter 11. 
Daniel 11 is referenced in almost every book or article that you're going to read when it comes to the idea of the Antichrist. Tremper Longman, one of the scholars we've been referencing, says this. He says, This previous section telescopes earthly and cosmic realities as well as near-future and far-future events. The king is Antiochus, but he's also something more, as in something worse than Antiochus. The end is the second century, but the end is also in the still-distant future. Just as the ideal king of the Psalms was grounded in the Davidic reality, like the actual person of David and his family, but in reality anticipated the messianic glory, the coming of the final Messiah, so the wicked of the end of Daniel is gr- the wicked king of the end of Daniel is grounded in the Antiochene reality, which there's a good term to drop at your next football party, but anticipated the horror of the Antichrist. Okay, it's a lot to unpack, but basically seeing something here, seeing something further down the road at the same time. Unless you think this is some new or novel idea, one of the early church fathers, St. Jerome, around the year 400, wrote this. Just as the Savior had Solomon and the other saints as types or pictures of his advent, so also we believe that the Antichrist very properly had as a type of himself the utterly wicked king Antiochus who persecuted the saints and defiled the temple. This idea has been around for a while. So what is the Antichrist? Is it a person? Is it a force? Is it, uh, you know, the name of a Marilyn Manson album? What is the Antichrist? How do we sort through all of this? So the starting point is, well, what is Christ or Messiah? Okay, Christ is New Testament Greek. Messiah is Hebrew, Old Testament Hebrew. It means the same thing. It means an anointed king. In the time of the kings of Israel, the way that you knew that somebody was king is a prophet or somebody else who was, had, the, had the authority would come and they would, you know, we anoint people with oil. We kind of like, you know, just rub a little bit on the forehead. They would literally just pour a bucket of oil over the head of the one who is to be anointed king. Kids and young people, do not try that at home. Your parents will very much displease, uh, disapprove of that. But it was, I mean, this is a symbol and a sign that this is God's chosen king and God's chosen ruler. So by definition, anti-Christ or anti-Messiah is a false king. It is one who stands opposed to leadership and authority and ruling and, and all of those things in a way that does not align with the values of the kingdom of God. Jesus warned that there would be false Christs in Matthew 24. He said, watch out for false Christs. They're going to be really convincing. They'll be really powerful. They'll speak things that will attract you. And if it was even possible, they could even mislead those who are elect by God. If such a thing were possible, Jesus says. So watch out. And Jesus actually tells us many false Christs, many anti-Christs. The specific word antichrist, like that actual word, is only used by John only four times, only in his letters. First and second John. And he says, you know, you've heard, he says it in, in, in John chapter two, first John two, he says, you've heard that antichrist, the antichrist is coming. And so now there are many antichrists in the world. 
So that term is only used by John, but the concept, like I said, in Daniel 11 or other places, the concept is found all over the place. There's one other specific phrase that might be interesting for you to know about and to study, which is from the pen of the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians. He uses this phrase, the man of lawlessness. And he says, paraphrasing, he says, before Christ returns and the final end of the age, there will be this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction. And then listen to the language that Paul uses. Tell me, tell me this doesn't sound like Daniel chapter 11. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. I don't know about you, that sounds a lot like Daniel 11 to me. Sounds like Paul is thinking of Daniel 11 as he speaks of this man of lawlessness. And then he wraps up this section by saying, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Second John in particular, Second John verse 7 says this, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Okay, we spend a lot of time in our Western American church tradition talking about the antichrist. But based upon the biblical evidence, there's actually a lot more than just one antichrist. I think, based on that passage in in 2 Thessalonians, that yes, right before the return of Jesus, there will be one final antichrist figure. But at the risk of sounding like a, a paranoid person, there are antichrists everywhere. They're everywhere. All over the place. Like, let me go back through this description, this portrait of evil, this picture of evil, this, this antichrist. It, it says that he will do as he will. He'll basically say, I am my own God. He shall do as he will. It says he'll exalt and magnify himself, be self-promotion. Look at me. I'm, I'm the one. I, it's, it's me. It's a me monster. It says he'll have boastful words. He'll speak astonishing things. I'm just curious, as I'm going through this list, just in the back of your mind somewhere, just think, have you ever seen this anywhere? No regard for others. He'll pay no attention to gods of his fathers, love of women. Only cares about strength. It says he'll only pay attention to the god of fortresses. Only cares about strength and power. He accepts flattery. Those who acknowledge him. He takes bribes. It says he'll divide up the land and put people in charge for a price. Okay, man, I'm on some thin ice here because do not say anything out loud. Anyone. Can you picture current or past American, other nations, any sort of political leader Ruling and leading like this. Keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Whatever it is you think about politics, just be reassured, I think the exact same thing. It's fine, we're on the same side. All I'm saying is actually, you don't have to look very far to find this picture 
being lived out throughout many rulers and many kings and many presidents and many prime ministers throughout all the nations of the world. We are sometimes so focused on this idea of who's the Antichrist that we forget that there's all sorts of pictures of things that are anti-Christ in the world all day long. Now, as if I wasn't on thin enough ice already, let me take it a step further. Because... Plato, the Greek philosopher, he said that the city or or the nation, it's like the soul of a man, but written in larger letters. He said, you look at a city, you look at a kingdom, you see all this corruption, all this injustice. He's like, yeah, you're actually getting a picture of the human heart. That's what he said. I'm paraphrasing very badly, but you can read it. It's in book two of the Republic. So when we look at antichrist rulership, antichrist leadership, antichrist nations. Let me, let me just ask you. Let me just ask me. Have you ever wanted to just do what you will and be in charge of your own life? Have you ever exalted and magnified yourself? Have you ever boasted with your words? Have you ever had less regard for others and more regard for yourself? Have you ever been more impressed with strength and with power than is fitting for the people of God? Have you ever, have you ever just enjoyed some good old-fashioned flattery? Boy, that feels good, doesn't it? You ever taken a bribe? One of the problems with this whole subject of Antichrist is it's really easy to get obsessed with and focused on the Antichrist out there and ignore all of the Antichrist that still remains in here. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've trusted him for your salvation, you are saved, you are forgiven, you are loved, you are washed clean, But how many of you know that there are still part of you that wages war inside of you, your flesh, your sinful desires, whatever you want to call it, that very often looks more like Antichrist than looks like the Christ? Anybody? Anybody? Now, I'm not calling you the Antichrist. (laughs) But what I am saying is we have these desires and these impulses that wage war against us part of our nature, even for those of us who have submitted our lives to Jesus and said, you're the Savior, you're the King, you're the Lord, I still have all sorts of ugly, ugly things in my own heart. There's still a little antichrist in each one of us that needs to be put to death by the power of the Spirit. One of the, one of the problems is it's just so easy to get fixated on the opposition or to get fixated on the evil out there. But the key to combating evil is not to just focus more on the evil. The key is to be fixated on our God. Look at what it says. Go back to verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. He's going to pull people away who don't care about keeping the law of God. He's just going to seduce them. He's going to pull them away. But the people who 
know their God shall stand firm and take action. They're going to stand firm. They'll be courageous amidst trials and they'll take action. They won't just sit on the sideline, but they're going to go be a force for good in the world, not shrinking away. It says the wise among the people shall make many understand. People who who know their God and have wisdom are going to put that wisdom to use. They're going to share the good news of the rulership of God and they're going to evangelize and they're going to disciple and they're going to use the wisdom that God has given to them to help other people. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, captivity and plunder. They're going to have hard times. It's not all going to be smooth sailing. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help and many shall join themselves to them with flattery and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time. One of our values as a church community is this idea of progress not perfection. There are no perfect people seated in this room. Amen? Not until we see Jesus face to face. But what's so amazing is even the stumbling and the hardships and the weaknesses that happen still lead to our refinement, our growth, our healing, our being made whole in Jesus. Is that good news to anyone here today? But the starting point of all of this is those who know their God. It all starts with relationship with God. How are you going to stand firm? How are you going to take action? How are you going to have progress even in the stumbling? How is any of that going to happen? Through relationship with God. And for us, as followers of Jesus, we know that relationship with God only comes through the person and the work of Jesus Christ our Savior, our Redeemer, our Champion, the one who is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God. And I love that this idea that the Antichrist is boastful and he's magnifying himself, but do you know that God is so sovereign? God is so sovereign. He uses all that boasting and all that bragging to help us see how perfect our Christ actually is. God takes all that attention. You guys know it's easy to get focused and fixated on the darkness. It's easy to get focused and fixated on evil and on brokenness and on the opposition. And yet God in his grace redirects our attention to the one who is our Christ. The Antichrist says he's going to ignore the gods of his fathers. But our Christ came to show us the God who is his father. The Antichrist will do as he wills, but our Christ in the garden prayed a prayer where he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. The Antichrist will put others down, but our Christ humbled himself to serve us even through death on a cross. The Antichrist lifts himself up, exalts himself, but our Christ is exalted by God, vindicated through the resurrection of the dead, and he's alive forevermore, never to die again. Amen? And the Antichrist, it says, he'll prosper for a time, 
but our Christ will rule and reign forever and ever through all eternity. That's good news. So, what do we do about the Antichrist? Three quick thoughts for you in closing. Number one, we need to be innocent of evil, but wise about its tactics. I say this to you, there's a tension there. We are not to be ignorant about evil. We are to be wise about the the forces of evil, but we need to be innocent of it. We need to not participate in evil. We need to not give ourselves to evil so that we can, quote, well, know more about it. No, we are to be wise. You know, Jesus himself said, be wise as serpents, but as, as harmless as doves. So there's a tension there that we have to live in. Not fools, not ignorant, not burying our heads in the sand, but not participating in that which is evil. Number two, I I don't know if I ever get the chance to battle the Antichrist out there, but I sure as heck have a daily, hourly opportunity to battle the Antichrist that still lives in here. Let's put that to death. Put to death that which is not of the Messiah within you. Get some friends. Get in a community group. Get some accountability around you. Spend some more time in the Bible and less on Disney Plus or whatever. And just like put to death that which is ungodly within you. And number three, keep your eyes focused more on Christ, not the Antichrist. Particularly for any of you who are just disposed toward focusing on that which is wrong. You know, some people have that kind of mentality. It's it's easier to focus on that which is wrong. Again, we got to be wise about evil, but at the end of the day, let our eyes be fixated on the one who is our Christ. Amen? And as we come now to the Lord's table to eat and to drink, and as we come now to sing and celebrate, we get to experience, we get to commune with our Christ, our perfect Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And thank you, though the darkness rages, we know that you hold all things sovereignly in the palm of your hand. Jesus, I ask and I pray right now, as we come to the Lord's table, you would help us to identify and to put to death that which remains in us that is anti-Christ. And God, I pray that you would build us up. You would purify us. You would refine us so that we can uh, stand firm and we can take action, that we can go into this world to make a difference, to bear the, the, what Paul calls the aroma of Christ into a world that just smells a lot like death at times. Build us up now as we eat and drink and as we sing and pray. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Aaron. We're going to respond now through the Lord's Supper, where we're going to meet, as Pastor Ann said, meet with our Savior. We're going to meet with our Rescue, our Redeemer. Uh, so we're going to take out the elements. If you receive those, if you grab those on the way in, if you didn't, feel free to grab them. They're out by the entrances. Uh, you can hold on to those for a minute. But um, just what a cool idea that we get to um, commune with God. We're taking this time now to gather around the table. We're not going to actually get up out of our seats, but we're going to gather around the table and meet with our Lord, meet with our Savior. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I have a lot. I have a lot of conversations with people. Um, you know, we all have those people in our lives that can get so fixated on the dark and the the ugly politics or whatever it may be. Um, 
And what an opportunity for us as Christians to witness, to, to respond in love, to, to point them back to Jesus, to point them back to the hope that we have. And as we're reflecting on the Lord's table, I'll read from 1 Corinthians 11, but it's this idea that we're remembering what Jesus has done. And so let us reflect on that this morning uh, as we partake in communion, that we can point people to the hope of the resurrected Jesus, the one who has defeated death and who will come again and, uh, and completely destroy all evil once and for all. So let me read uh, from 1 Corinthians 11 for us. Paul says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we take these elements as a way to remember Jesus' sacrifice, his broken body represented by the the cracker or the bread, and his shed blood represented by the cup. We remember what he did for us. And then Paul continues on, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So it's this call to examine our hearts, to reflect on uh, what is what areas, as, as Pastor Aaron was just talking about, what areas in my heart, in my own life, in my anti-Christ, what areas do I need to repent of? And do I need to turn over to him and, and start to live in a way that uh, witnesses to the world around me the hope that we say we believe in? Uh, so I'm going to pray for us, and then I would just encourage you to take a minute. Just examine your own hearts, pray and ask the Lord uh, what it is he wants to reveal to you this morning. Uh, And then once after I pray, feel free to take a little bit of time, just pray quietly, and then partake of the elements whenever you're ready, and then join us as we stand and sing. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, this reminder this morning. Uh, Thank you for the hope that we have in you. And I pray, God, that as we uh, just take time now to pray, to examine our hearts, Lord, would you reveal to us, Holy Spirit, show us uh, where in our own lives do we need to repent God, where are the, the things that we, that we just need to give to you and trust you in greater ways this morning? Pray for my friends, Lord, as they, each of us, just take time now to reflect on the great work you did on the cross. Thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. Thank you for um, defeating death. And, and thank you for the hope that we have of eternal life. Uh, one day, all evil will be uh, destroyed, that you will conquer all things. God, we are so grateful for this truth and this this promise, this hope that we have. We pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.